0: A bespeckled young boy, just 7 years old, stands next to his school science project. He smiles widely for a picture snapped by his stepmother Terry, a woman who had helped raise him since he was a baby. But just moments after this photo was taken, this innocent little boy would vanish into thin air, never to be seen again. That was almost 10 years ago, and still to this very day there has never been anyone charged and no trace of Chiron has ever been found. No one anticipated that when this smiling photo was taken, hours later, police would be combing woods and diving into dark waters searching for Chiron's little body. What could have possibly happened in the time between when this infamous picture was taken and when seven-year-old Kyron Horman seemingly disappeared off the face of the earth. Now think about it. Chiron was last seen inside his school, inside four walls, where parents are supposed to feel like their child is safer than anywhere else in the world, second only to perhaps having them at home. Where could this little boy have gone? Who could have possibly taken him completely unnoticed? What followed was the state of Oregon's largest search and rescue effort ever. But it was also a crippled investigation with no credible leads and no physical clues. But what did exist was a dark cloud of suspicion, despite no hard evidence, surrounding his stepmother, Terry. Terry failed not one, but two polygraph tests. And the laundry list of her questionable behavior seemed to be never-ending. Her cell phone pinged from a random tower near an island on the day Kyron went missing, an island that she didn't tell police she went to. She was also unaccounted for for hours on that day, claiming she was driving her daughter around rural back roads to ease her daughter's earache. But then she dropped her earache and all at the gym daycare she wrote a tone-deaf Facebook post about hitting the gym right after authorities announced they had growing fears her stepson could be not just in danger, but dead. The victim of a crime. You'd honestly think it just couldn't look any worse for this woman. But then, like something out of a bad movie, she was accused by her gardener of trying to hire him as a hitman to off her husband Kane. Now, you may be thinking, okay, now there's a hit man. Now it must really be the last straw. How could this possibly look any worse for this woman? Well, believe it or not, there's more. Yes, there was zero physical evidence in this case, but there certainly seemed to be a lot of circumstantial evidence building up against Terry, evidence that led police to keep digging in her direction. And when they did, What they found was shocking. You will not believe what Terry was doing secretly, all while her little stepson was missing and presumed kidnapped, lost in the cold, in danger, perhaps even dead. This story of a missing little boy is also a story about a family torn apart by secrets, lies, and now sex. You're listening to "Into the Thin Air, the mysterious disappearance of Kyron Horman. As I navigate around my new studio here in Texas, I would like to be prepared for anything like unexpected interviews outside in the rain. That's why my Vessies are my absolute favorite go-to shoes. They keep my feet snug, dry, and stylish. My Bessie Stormburst fits my professional vibe, ensuring style and comfort in any weather condition. Transform your everyday routine into an adventure with Bessie's Stormburst. Comfortable, stylish, and waterproof, not water resistant. Big difference. Bessie's lineup, Stormburst, the everyday classic and Chelsea offers unparalleled comfort for all-day wear. Embrace every moment come rain or shine with Bessie. Head over to Bessie.com slash mystery to explore our versatile collection and claim your 15% discount on your first order. Visit Vessi.com slash mystery for footwear that will gear you up for the whole year round and get 15% off your first order. I want to be very clear because I want to be completely fair. To this day, Terry has denied any wrongdoing in the case of Kyron's disappearance and has insisted she is innocent. She believes the media took her admittedly poor choices and just ran with them, painting a picture of an evil, jealous, and uncaring stepmother who wanted little Kyron out of the picture. And Kyron's mom, Desiree, certainly backed that up. She said she had seen scathing emails written from Terry to a friend where she said she hated Kyron, wanted him gone, and blamed him for her marriage troubles. Terry denied that. She claimed that just could not be further from the truth.
1: I love Kyron. I've never hated a child in my life. I've never said that about a child. So anything that Desiree has said publicly, people just take what she says as being the God's truth, and it's certainly not. Uh, she can't produce one iota of evidence. Anything about Kyron or hating him? Absolutely not.
0: But despite Terry proclaiming her innocence, her marriage crumbled. Which doesn't really come as a surprise. At first, Kane was able to overlook the fact that his wife was the last adult reportedly with Chiron before he disappeared. Because he trusted her. But soon, he began to believe she was lying to him and then hearing that she might have hired someone to kill him, even though it was just a baseless accusation with no proof whatsoever, it was just too much piled up against him. The marriage was over. Now, both of Kyron's biological parents had fully turned on Tara. Within a month after his disappearance, the investigation transitioned from endangered missing child to a criminal case and all eyes were on Terry. Again, while she was not charged with anything, the Sheriff's Department had found a number of suspicious activities that led them to keep looking in Terry's direction. And when they did, police were about to discover one of the most shocking things Terry did. While she should have been out searching for her missing stepson, filled with grief and fear, she was doing something else altogether. And this time, it was way worse than just looking forward to, quote, hitting the gym. While Kyron was missing, Terry was having a sordid secret affair. And this affair wasn't just with some stranger. Detectives uncovered a number of sexual messages sent while Kyron was missing to Kane's high school friend, Michael Cook. To Kyron's parents, that was the final nail in her coffin. It's not known exactly when Terry's affair began, but it definitely was going on during the investigation into Kyron's disappearance. Terry admitted to the affair, but claimed it was nothing more than a revenge tactic against Kane.
1: Kane's and my relationship in the very beginning was highly sexual ex- from the very beginning. For years until actually until our daughter was born, Um, people do stupid things, and that was something that stupid that I did that I just can't I can't take it back. It's already out there, right? There's nothing I can can do about it other than apologize for it. But I was so far away of who I am at that point. I don't even for for us a. Sex was um, soothing, comfortable, familiar. And um, it's not an excuse, but it's, it's apparently some place I decided to go. I did it. This was it. an escape. Yeah, I did it for
0: the wrong reasons. Terry said the affair was never anything serious, but the fact that she was worried about sexting her boyfriend on the side while her stepson was missing, goes to show that she wasn't acting how a frantic mother should. This was a married mother who, instead of sticking by her husband and trying to find this child, she spent her nights sexting. I have those text messages that she sent to Michael, and they're not exactly something I can say freely. But some of the lighter ones she sent him, including texts that read, and I quote, We need to arm wrestle. Meanwhile, just know I can take you down. I won't hurt you, though. I'll pin you down and sit on you. I take it you're attracted to me, okay? I didn't want to ravish you or anything. Insert evil grin with latex. Oops, did I say that out loud? If you didn't have your son tonight, I would show what I think of you. I may have to clear it with the boss. And then it goes on, quote, You're toast. Beware going to bed, underwear and tank top. Think about that. Do you want to pick? And she proceeds to send Michael a photo and claims that's the only one she has left. Terry sent these text messages to Michael 26 days after Kyron went missing. So while Kane and Desiree were worried sick about their child, while hundreds of volunteers were scouting dangerous terrain in the Portland mountains, and while the state of Oregon was paying millions of dollars in order to fund those searches, this is what Terry was doing. This is the behavior she engaged in when no one was looking. Now. People do crazy things when they're grieving or in shock. People handle stress in strange ways. But this woman had stated very clearly that she regarded Kyron as her own child. She said, I don't look at this as someone else's child that I'm raising. I don't regard this as a stepchild. This affects me the same as if my own child, my own flesh and blood, had gone missing. I'm hurting as much as if this was my own child. I've been doing this for 45 years, and I've seen people handle stress and worry and panic in a lot of different ways. But I don't think I've ever seen a mother frantic to find her own child that got into sexting, sending sexual images, flirting, having provocative conversations with someone else while they were frantically looking for their child, while they were grieving the possible loss of their child. Self-pleasure, romance, relationships are the last thing someone has energy for when they're worrying about that kind of a tragic loss. So you have to ask yourself, what kind of mother figure is sending half-naked photos to her boyfriend when the boy that she supposedly considers her own child is somewhere out in the elements, or possibly lying dead in a ditch? Now this, of course, does not prove that Terry had any involvement in Kyron's disappearance. But it does highlight a pattern of someone who didn't seem to have a typical response pattern, didn't seem to have a typical sensitivity to or a caring response to the absence of this child, to the fact that this child had seemingly been abducted. Someone that would do that just doesn't seem to care that it was looking more and more like this little boy was never coming home. One's mind tends to race and wonder, what is he going through? What has he gone through? How could this have happened? What could I have done to change this? I took him to school. It was my responsibility. I was trusted with this child. This was on my watch, and he supposedly disappeared in the space of 50 feet inside a school building full of children, teachers, adults. Clearly, the behavior was just out of character for someone that was truly empathetic and sympathetic for the loss of this child, inconsistent with someone that had loved a child and would be heartbroken at their absence. The behavior was just simply out of character and didn't match what Terry had spent years trying to prove that she was a normal, loving mother. So what was Terry's reasoning for sending lewd messages to Cain's old pal, sending messages that were provocative and flirtatious while her stepson, according to her, her son, was just gone without a trace. Well, according to her, Cain was unfaithful to her prior to Chiron's disappearance. And Terry was seeking comfort from Michael, something she desperately needed, especially during a time when everyone was pointing a finger at her, basically calling her a murderer.
1: This was in retaliation for something that he was doing that I found out about Wallace is happening. And this particular person was actually his friend and sent to the house. So this was a setup. I'm saying this person came to the house. He was Cain's friend. I did this deliberately because I was angry and getting back at him.
0: So you text and say, I'll show you what pleasure I had is? No,
1: I had no interest in having this person in my life. This was something to screw with Cain because I was angry with him because he was doing the exact same thing with somebody else.
0: So who was this someone else? Well. Cain never admitted to an affair. No woman ever came forward. Cain claimed he had no idea Terry was having a revenge affair with his friend, or that she was even angry at him. For him, the morning Kyron banished started out just like any other ordinary day. But when Desiree found out about the affair and heard Terry's explanation that she had slept with Cain's friend out of revenge, she worried that there was something they had missed. Had Terry been hiding a secret rage against Cain? Had she been fuming inside, bottled up with so much anger and resentment that she was looking for revenge? And if so, was it possible she could have taken that rage out on poor, sweet little Kyron just to punish his father?
2: I believe that he was having an affair on Terry. And I told Cain that when you are married to the devil and you give her a reason to be pissed off, all of your sins are going to come back, and here we are in this situation.
0: But Terry was convinced that she was just the unluckiest woman in the world, and that all the dirt being dug up on her was just being put out there to the media to make her the scapegoat. With no sign of Chiron, she claimed that Cain, Desiree, the media, as well as the rest of the country, needed someone to blame, and since she was the last one to see Chiron. She was the perfect target. And clearly when you find out that she's seemingly having this cold and insensitive affair while the child is missing, that just makes her look all the more evil. But she says that it was just seeking comfort. But you know, from a psychological standpoint, if you're engaged with someone seeking comfort, there's a different tone to the exchanges than if you're engaged with someone having fun. There's a difference between flirtatious, hey, you know, I'm gonna come get with you in bed, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, versus a tone to the exchanges that says, I'm really hurting here, I'm really in pain, I need love and support. And I have to say what little we do know about this affair seems like it was more flirtatious and fun-loving, than seeking comfort and support for pain. By the summer of 2010, Terry Horman's public image had fully transformed from grieving and worried stepmother to a highly suspect, vengeful wife, who seemed to have no conscience and no sense of right or wrong, seemingly devoid of any moral compass whatsoever. And the inconsistencies in her story were catching up to her. Because of her strange behavior, those inconsistencies now seemed like sinister lies, as opposed to a confused and grieving woman, perhaps misremembering details. First, Harry allegedly lied to the police and said that she and Kane had a big fight on the morning of the science fair. Well, this was a surprise to everyone, including Kane, who outright denied that they fought the night before the science fair.
1: It was a normal morning for me, up at five o'clock to the gym, back home, get ready for work, kiss Kyron goodbye, go to the office.
0: Then she allegedly lied about the moment she left Kyron's sight at the top of the stairs at Skyline Elementary.
2: She lied about where she was positioned when she saw Kyron. I said, that's not possible. You cannot see Kyron's classroom if he was right next to the door.
0: Terry has since changed her story about this, claiming now that she wasn't standing on the stairs because she was already inside the hallway. This, however, was not what she told investigators the day the boy disappeared.
1: If you are standing at the top of the stairs in the hallway and you an unobstructed view to one end of the hallway to the next, it's like in in your house, in a a hallway in your house, one in the hallway to the other, it is a straight shot. I don't understand how you cannot see. I'm not standing on the stairs, I'm in the hallway itself right where the dot is.
0: So what exactly happened between the moment she took that infamous picture of the child standing in front of his science project and the moment she left? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Literally speaking, since this was the costliest missing persons investigation in Oregon state history, nearing $1.6 million, searching for this child. But Desiree wasn't going to let the fate of her son rest in the hands of the state and federal government. She was going to take matters into her own hands. And when she found out about Terry's alleged murder for hire plot, she began to publicly accuse Terry of not telling the truth.
2: I believe she's involved in this. I think she um, is the one that has all the answers.
0: Tell me what that is. Tell me what it is you know that causes you to say, this is the person I want to focus on.
2: The first red flag for me was lying about the science fair and the school that day. She lied about where she was positioned when she saw Kyron and at the last place that she saw him.
0: After Desiree came out swinging against Terry publicly, the media outcry was swift and merciless. Terry could no longer volunteer at Skyline Elementary. Any and all aspirations she had about becoming an educator or a superintendent, well, Those just evaporated. And because Cain had separated from her, she had to fend for herself. What did that mean? She had to go looking for a job, and as you can imagine, people were not clamoring to hire her. If you remember, Cain was the family's primary breadwinner, and much of the resentment that Terry had against him was that she was forced to become a housewife when in fact she had dreams of having a career. So with Kane now out of the picture, she was stuck, finding a way to survive, and she was finding very few people who were interested in helping her in any way whatsoever. It certainly didn't help her case when Cain attempted to hold her in contempt of court. Now, according to his petition, Terry violated the restraining order by making attempts to reunite with their daughter, Kiara. Allegedly, according to Kane, she attempted to kidnap their daughter from her daycare center, but the staff was quick to prevent her from taking her daughter. Kane also wanted Terry held in contempt of court for allegedly sharing sealed legal information about their impending divorce to Michael Cook, the man Terry was admittedly having an affair with. But as things continued to pile up on Terry, she still kept giving her critics more ammo to use against her. What do I mean by that? Well, on July 9th of 2010, detectives asked Terry to take another polygraph test. This was going to be not her first, not her second, but her third one. But before she could complete it, she stormed out, refusing to answer any more questions. So now, for the third time, she can't pass a polygraph when she's asked to answer questions about Chiron's disappearance. But as things continued to pile up on Terry, she still kept giving her critics more ammo to use against her. On July 9, 2010, now approximately five weeks after Carmen had gone missing, detectives asked Terry to take yet another polygraph test. This was going to be her third one in just over a month. But before she could complete it, She stormed out, refusing to answer any more questions. So now for the third time, she cannot pass a polygraph when she's asked to answer questions about the child's disappearance. Investigators decided to try to close in on her. At this point, Terry's behavior must have given them reason to consider that this could potentially be a scorned wife who wanted to get back at her unfaithful husband. And that's what detectives latched onto And they decided the man they could potentially use to catch her was none other than Rodolfo Rudy Sanchez. Now, as we talked about before, Rudy Sanchez was the landscaper whom Terry hired to do her landscaping in the fall of 2009. So this is six to eight months before Kyron disappears. When detectives questioned him, he made the unspeakable, horrifying allegation that Terry offered to pay him $10,000 to murder her husband, Kane. She allegedly asked him to make it look like a mugging. The police were so determined to get anything on Terry that they decided to see if they could use Rudy in some way to get to her. They convinced him to wear a wire and wanted him to try to get Terry to confess either for the alleged murder-for-hire or about anything to do with Kyron. So Rudy and an undercover cop posing as his friend paid Terry a visit. In an attempt to get her to confess about the murder-for-hire plot, Rudy demanded that he receive the $10,000 payment he claimed she had promised him. But the trap failed. It was too convenient that Rudy was asking for the money six months after he was allegedly offered it. Terry saw right through him, picked up the phone, and called 911. Detectives suspected this would happen and had already informed the county sheriff's office that any outgoing call from the Horman residence was probably part of their sting. When Rudy couldn't get Terry to confess while wearing a wire, he and the undercover officer left the property. Terry was furious and clearly defensive at this point painting Rudy as an alleged womanizing landscaper who had made moves on her. She claimed that it was Rudy, not her, who offered to kill Kane in order to get him out of the picture so that he can have Terry all to himself. Now, I take something different away from this, because this does validate that a conversation did take place about murdering her husband Kane. There is equivocation about who brought it up, whether it was her or whether it was Rudy. But let's assume for a minute that it was Rudy that brought this up. And again, this was the fall of 2009, because what tipped her off was that it was at least six months before he came back and wanted the money. And she was so offended, she picked up the phone and called 911. If this was so offensive to her sensibilities as this was so foreign to her moral compass why didn't she call 911 in the fall of 2009 if in fact he broached this idea with her in the fall of 2009 why didn't she report it then one explanation would be that it wasn't him that brought it up at all it was her alternative explanations could be that She was more upset now than she was then. But again, take it in the context of everything else, it certainly doesn't look good. If this sounds like a plot to a bad soap opera, then it will relieve you to know that these accusations were never proven and, of course, were never presented to a court. But based on what I just said, they were validated by her because She told authorities that it was Rudy, not her, who offered to kill Cain, which means that this was not just made up out of whole cloth. A conversation did take place. But with that being said, Terry was not going to let her public image be destroyed without bringing her accusers down with her. Terry had publicly stated that she had no idea why she was being accused of having some involvement in Kyron's disappearance, when in fact, it was the landscaper who had aggressively and allegedly forced himself on her just prior to Kyron going missing. When asked about these claims, here's what she had to say.
1: According to him, he wanted to see me on Mother's Day, and he was dressed differently, he, I, he had cologne on, and then he comes up to me and he said, well, I just really wanted to see you." and he put his, I was holding my daughter here, and he comes up to my left side, and he puts his arms around me and gave me a kiss by the, the ear.
0: And while Rudy denied anything like this ever happened, it's important to note just how deceptive this situation was because it turns out that Kane never even knew that Rudy was working on his yard. That's right, the man who would do landscaping work on Kane's yard was hidden as a secret. Apparently, Kane was so out of touch about what was going on under his own roof at his own home that he had no idea Rudy had been hired by his wife to work there. Kane had wanted his stepson, Terry's son James, to clean the backyard as part of his chores. But Terry thought that their two acre back property was just too much work for the 15 year old. So, what did she do? She hired Rudy and gave the credit to James. Kane arrived home from work, saw that the backyard was being maintained, and thought it was James doing it. Terry had purposely and willfully lied and deceived her husband for something as small as getting her son out of a daily chore. When it comes to deception, you have to ask yourself, is this how it starts? You know, you think you're telling a little white lie, something harmless that you think is not that big of a deal, and you know, then it turns into To something else, and then something a little bigger. And you just kind of get in the habit of, you know, if you don't tell him, then he can't be upset. And before you know, the lies get bigger, the omissions get more significant, and you have a relationship riddled with deception. For Terry, she probably thought it was a tiny fib. She would ask Rudy to come in. She would pay for his labor. James got to stay inside the house. Kane would see his yard was clean. No one would get hurt. Everybody would just. Continue on with their day. Innocent enough, that's how it always starts. But you always have to ask, if they lie with ease about one thing, might they be lying with ease about something else? Was there a pattern here? If Terry thought it was okay to lie about James cleaning the yard, was that just her way of dealing with things? And it certainly called into question the validity of her statements about Chiron—was she lying that she never offered Rudy ten thousand dollars to murder Kane? Lies can really undermine a relationship. They can really undermine a family. They can destroy any kind of trust, any kind of foundation to the family. But you never expect them to go to the point of someone accusing you of trying to hire a hitman to kill your spouse. After the failed sting, the detectives had to go back to the drawing board. Not only was this the sheriff's office' most notorious case, but the pressure from state and federal agencies to end this investigation was mounting. And I don't mean they wanted to shut it down and ask all the volunteers to go home. What they wanted was for the sheriff's office to find the boy or come up with something that would justify the over $1 million that had been spent in the ground search effort And the criminal prosecution. And when I say prosecution, I really mean investigation, because much to the frustration and chagrin of many, many people watching this, not a single charge had been filed. Now, for the deputies in charge, this meant they had either two choices find the boy or arrest someone. Almost two months into the search effort, they couldn't find even a footprint to point them in the right direction, therefore, they concluded finding young Chiron was going to be nearly impossible. No witnesses, no surveillance footage, no DNA, no footprints, no sightings, no piece of clothing, and no history that would indicate that he would run away. There was truly nothing. He had apparently vanished into thin air. On July 16th, now approximately six weeks since he had disappeared, Terry officially packed her belongings and moved out of the home she had once shared with her seemingly happy family, Kyron, Kane, and Kiara. She moved back home to her parents' house in Roseburg, Oregon, to wait out the storm. But the storm brewing? Well, it was only getting worse. Detective sidelined Rudy because there was someone else of interest who was very close to Terry that they wanted to speak to. Her close friend, Dee Dee Spicer. Dee Dee was the one Terry called after her marriage with Kane crumbled and he took off with their daughter. Dee, Dee even stayed with Terry during that time, moving in for 11 days. She was a shoulder for her to cry on, and really, Terry's sole support system as the media circus surrounded her. Dee Dee revealed that she moved in with Terry to support her friend, saying, and I quote, There's this horror that my friend is going through. If I thought for a second that she was capable of foul play, I would not have been there. She would not have been my friend in the first place. But Dee Dee didn't just show up to be a shoulder to cry on. After Kyron went missing, people began to suspect that she may have been with Terry on the very day Kyron disappeared. During the very hours that Terry was unaccounted for, reportedly driving on the rural roads of Oregon, investigators wondered if Terry's best friend might know something she wasn't saying about Kyron's disappearance. Or maybe she might even have met up with her. Maybe she was involved. Maybe she helped her. They release a flyer with Dee Dee's face showing her wild, curly red hair staring into the camera. And they ask for information, any kind of information, This seemed to be a common tactic in this investigation. They don't name anyone as a suspect. They don't name anyone as a person of interest. But by showing someone's photo, of course the public jumps into thinking Dee Dee might have helped her best friend hide a body. Dee Dee's whereabouts on the morning of the science fair suddenly came under a bright spotlight and definitely into question. So where was she that day? Well, there are some holes in her story. She claims that at nine o'clock on the morning of the child's disappearance, she is doing some gardening work after being hired by a homeowner in the rural area of Germantown, which is on the opposite side of town from Skyline Elementary. At this same time, Kyron and Terry are parting ways from the science fair, and Kyron is never to be seen again. Two hours later. The homeowner who hired Didi came outside to check on her and sees that her work on his garden is only half finished. He claims he called out for Didi, but no one answered. He claimed he then checked the backyard to see if she was there. She was not. He wondered if Didi was in the restroom or in another part of the property. He claims he called out Didi's name one last time. Again, no response. He tried calling her cell phone, but it appeared to be off. It went straight to voicemail. But strangely enough, her vehicle was still parked in front of the house. Now, if she's not anywhere on the property, but she left her car there, then that must mean she had gotten a ride from someone. But who drove her and why is the question. Could she have been picked up? And if so, could she have been picked up by none other than her friend Terry? For the next 90 minutes, Dee Dee remained unaccounted for. The homeowner calls her, wondering why she left so abruptly, and still there's no answer. From 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m., Dee does not answer her phone, and no one has any clue as to where she might be. Again, this is the exact time that Terry is unaccounted for, the time she claimed she was driving through rural back roads to calm her daughter down from an ear infection. It was at this time that her cell phone pinged near Sauvie Island. Were Terry and Dee Dee there together? When I mentioned that there was an overwhelming amount of circumstantial incidences, I wasn't kidding. And the part that was frustrating for the investigators was that none of them could have proved anything or pin these two women at a certain location at an exact time. Certainly not at an exact time together. All they knew was that on the morning of June 4th, 2010, from 1130 to 1, three people were missing and unaccounted for. Kyron Horman, Terry Horman, and Didi Dee Dee Spicer. It wasn't a jump to wonder if they were all together. Dee Dee flat out denied the accusation that she met up with Terry in the hours after Kyron vanished, but she failed to answer what she was doing in that 90-minute window. Instead, she insisted to investigators that she never left the Germantown property. According to her, she was gardening that entire morning and afternoon, and anything to the contrary is a baseless lie. So was the homeowner lying? And if so, what would be his motive? Why didn't he see her there when he went looking for her? What purpose would this man have to lie to authorities in regards to the biggest missing persons case in the state of Oregon? How would it benefit him to frame Dee Dee and connect her to the disappearance of a boy that didn't happen until that same morning? It boggles the mind how any of that could make sense. But, Despite Didi's Dee refusal to admit that she left her job that morning, authorities did say that she was cooperative in other aspects of the investigation. For example, she allowed a full-scale search of both her home and her vehicle. No trace of Chiron was found in either location. Investigators were focused on finding evidence on what Terry and Didi Dee Dee were doing from 11.30 to 1 p.m. They scoured hours of surveillance footage, took dozens of eyewitness statements, Detectives asked every homeowner in that neighborhood if they had seen either Dee Dee or Terry together any time around June 4th. No one had. Another dead end. No one saw them together. But on the other hand, no one was able to corroborate their stories either. No one could corroborate that Terry was driving the back roads with her daughter. No one could corroborate that Dee Dee was at work gardening during that time. All investigators had to go on was that the man who hired Dee says she left his property for a portion of time that day, and that she did so without her car. But there was just no evidence to prove his statement. But even if investigators couldn't pinpoint Dee's location from 1130 to 1, they weren't done with her yet. Like Rudy, Dee was going to be subpoenaed before a grand jury in order to testify about her actions, on the morning of Kyron's disappearance. In time, investigators came across yet another shocking discovery. Dee Dee had allegedly helped Terry purchase an untraceable phone. With the subpoena, detectives hoped that they would be able to uncover whether or not Dee Dee left with someone and whether she really did purchase an untraceable phone for Terry, and if so, why. If this was true, what could these two best friends have been plotting that they needed an untraceable phone? Was Terry planning to go on the run? And was her best friend planning to help her disappear? Well, that was one theory. What could Terry have wanted to talk about that she didn't want detectives to know about? If this wasn't true, if there was nothing for her to hide communication-wise, why would she need a phone no one could trace? However, police never found this mystery phone, and Terry Mm. vehemently denied its existence, claiming she would have never needed one, because neither she nor Dee Dee had anything to do with Kyron going missing, and she had absolutely nothing, zero to hide. Terry's lawyer called the speculation about her and Dee Dee, nothing short of a witch hunt. Dee Dee insisted that she had nothing to do with the boy's disappearance and said she was being pressured by investigators to nail Terry. When speaking to People Magazine, she said, quote, they wanted me to tell them that Terry did it or that Terry knew something. I told them everything that I knew over and over again, but I didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. Dee Dee also insisted she does not believe Terry had anything to do with Kyron's disappearance. Telling people, I just really don't. In my heart, I really don't. In all of these years, I have not seen anything that would lead me to believe that she is capable or motivated in any way to do something like this. Well, both Cain and Desiree believed Didi was somehow involved in their son's disappearance. Didi was called to testify before a grand jury. She hired a lawyer, and police noted, and I quote, She was the only witness that we know of that's lawyered up. For someone who's got nothing to hide and is fully cooperative, that's a strange way to show it. I have to depart here for a minute and comment on that. If you've been interrogated over and over and over again and they're searching your vehicle, they're searching your home, you've got someone alleging that you've left your job, and there's a child missing, and you're getting ready to testify under oath, you damn well better get you a lawyer, because you have no idea what the agenda may or may not be. So for someone has got nothing to hide, hiring a lawyer this does not seem unusual to me at all. I have no opinion as to where this woman stood in this situation, but given all the scrutiny that she was under and all the interrogations she had been subjected to and the allegations of her employer, if I'm getting ready to walk into an interrogation room or a grand jury room, you can bet I'm going to lawyer up because I might just be going in there to become a patsy or hang myself without knowing it. It's easy for law enforcement or prosecutors who are comfortable with the system to say, hey, you don't need that. But for a layman, someone that's not involved, to get a guide to guide you through that process makes a lot of sense to me. Finally, after remaining silent as the media wrote about her daily, Terry decided to take the stand and publicly defend herself. She spoke to the media and proclaimed her innocence. And in this interview, she revealed a shocking confession, one she had never mentioned before. She said that when she got out of her truck with Kyron, when she dropped him off at school, she spotted another white truck parked near the school and a mysterious man sitting inside. She claimed at the time she didn't think anything of it. After all, this was an elementary school. There's hundreds of cars dropping off kids at 8 a.m. in the morning, so naturally she didn't consider this white truck suspicious until she revealed a frightening twist. According to Terry, the day before, on June 3rd, that same white truck, a Ford F-150, pulled up to a 7-Eleven convenience store by Highway 30 and the cashier inside saw the man driving the truck pacing frantically back and forth outside the store. The man then allegedly walked inside and asked the cashier, where is the nearest school? To which the man replied, Skyline Elementary. Apparently, after the suspicious man hopped back into his truck and drove away, the cashier called the police, but no one ever followed up with a tip. This, according to Terry, And I say, according to Terry, with a strong emphasis of doubt, because this is what that story looked like from the perspective of the sheriff's office. Why? Because they could find no record of any call made to 911 from a 7-Eleven store that morning. There is a 7-Eleven near Highway 30, but when detectives searched the surveillance footage, There was no sign of a white truck parked outside, and there was no one suspiciously walking back and forth. So no call was made, no surveillance footage shows a truck or a man pacing back and forth. It's also interesting that in Terry's story, the cashier never described to the police what this man looked like. Since this man asked about the nearest school in the vicinity, the cashier had to have gotten a good look at him, And where did Terry get all this information from? She said it was what she heard. But she provided no details, no evidence to corroborate these claims. Where did she hear it? And what was the likelihood that Terry knew all these details but didn't know the kind of details that would have actually helped the detectives? The man's height, ethnicity, choice of clothes any identifying characteristics. It was a thin, vague allegation that didn't help steer the investigation in any way. Certainly not away from her. Things remained stalled until during the hundreds of hours spent interviewing every staff member, teacher, and student at Skyline Elementary, one eyewitness did disclose something that changed everything. During this interview, which was later leaked to the Oregonian newspaper, an unidentified witness claimed that there was indeed a suspicious man on the premises of Skyline Elementary on June 4th, and he really was in a white truck. But it wasn't the one Terry claimed was loitering outside the school and a 7-Eleven. It was Terry's because the witness said this man was inside her vehicle. That's right. The witness says there was a suspicious man on the premises. He was in a white truck, but it was Terry's truck that he was in. But like every allegation raised against her, Terry brushed it off as another smear Aided by the police in order to frame her for an alleged kidnapping or worse. But police think they could be onto something. They hold a press conference asking for investigative assistance assistance to help their office track down someone seen in or around a white Ford F 150 pickup that happened to be near the school's grounds on the day Kyron disappeared. In his press conference, he states witnesses have reported seeing another person near Terry's truck while it was parked in front of Skyline Elementary between 8.15 and 8.45 a.m. But no other information on the description of this person was given. So how exactly will people try to find this figure? Especially given that this is well over two months after Kyron went missing. Could the man that this witness claimed to have seen actually have been DeeDee? That's what reporters speculated the police might be thinking when they didn't give any details about the, quote, person that may have been in Terry's truck. Terry continued to claim that there was someone else that took Kyron. When asked what she thinks happened to Kyron, here's exactly what she had to say.
1: I think that somebody came in the school and took him. Uh, one of the exonerating things that people don't, our public's not made aware of, is the day before on June 3rd, when I was completely someplace else at the doctor's, and at the gym, uh, there was a man in a white pickup truck, uh, Ford, and it was parked at 7-Eleven on Highway 30, which is near the school. He was acting very strangely, and he was uh, addressed by one of the employees there that came out and asked him what he'd doing, because he'd been um, pacing back and forth in front of the 7-Eleven for about an hour. And he was, went over to find out what was going on, and the guy, I'm not sure what the entire conversation was about, but I do know from, the, from a couple of these witnesses that uh, this man asked the employee where the nearest school was, and that employee told him, Skyline. And this is the day before. Um, when the, uh, after all this happened, uh, the other, another employee that was working there that day, she had contacted the police and said, hey, there is this strange guy here. We've got a tape of it. Would you like to come see it? The cops went over there. They viewed the tape, and she asked them, would you, would you like the tape? And they said, no, we're good. They didn't even take the tape.
0: Terry and the sheriff's office seemed to be in a game of cat and mouse. At the beginning of this investigation, bombshell reports would come out about Terry. She would deny them, but give them just enough bones to point the investigation into a different direction. Was Terry taking the sheriff's office on a wild goose chase, making them chase after a ghost, or was there really someone there that day lurking between the hallways of Skyline Elementary in order to allegedly kidnap Kyron? By mid-August 2010, two months after Kyron mysteriously vanished, the Horman's family life was in a downward spiral, and it was about to get even worse. Over the next several months, while search and rescue teams continued looking through the woods behind Skyline, and divers swimming in the waters off Salvee Island, Desiree was prepping with her team of lawyers something that completely blindsided Terry, something that would change the direction of Kyron's investigation. Plus, did detectives' search for an alleged strange man lead to any credible suspects? Well... We're going to talk about all of this and more on the next episode of Into Thin Air, the mysterious disappearance of Kyron Horman. I'm Dr. Phil.